Let's Chat Health with Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare. So I'm joined today by Dr. Andrew McDowell, founder of TPC Health. And Andrew is a psychologist, coach, and leadership professional with more than 30 years experience of innovation in the health and care sector. So in this fifth episode, we're going to chat about health coaching. But I thought, first of all, we could start with um, Andrew just explaining about TPC Health, who they are and what they do. Thank you, Anne. And um, thanks for welcoming welcoming me uh, to to your podcast. Um, TPC Health is an organization which has its roots in coaching and in particular in, in health coaching. And we do a lot of work with the health and social care sector, also with um, the commercial sector, when they're focused on looking at well-being, uh, how to improve well-being through various formats. So we do a lot of work in, in coaching, uh, in leadership development, organizational development interventions, which really support, I guess what I guess what really is important to us is working with organizations so they can be at their best. Uh, and really thrive in whatever it is that they're doing. Okay, so it's not just dealing with training health professionals in health coaching for for patients. It's also staff, staff management, staff well-being. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, the we do have a specialism in in the, in the development of clinicians, practitioners, and and um, less qualified lay people in how they can use coaching in whatever they're doing uh, to support uh, well-being and, and health. Um, and that's probably that's the principle I think that you want to talk about today, uh, but we do a few other things as well. Yeah, okay, so we could move on to so this sort of concept, which is quite new to everyone, you know, not new to you, obviously, but <laughs> new to us. And, um, you know, lots of people think, what on earth is it? And, and I find that's the hardest thing when you're talking to people about health coaching, you know, what is it? So maybe you could expand on, on that. Yeah, I'm super happy to. Um, I think it, it's become quite confused what it is because it's being used in different ways. Uh, and in the UK, it's got a very um, short heritage, in, in fact, whereas in other parts of the world, uh, it's been around for a little bit longer. So um, up until two or three years ago, uh, what health coaching used to mean uh, in the in the UK was how um, practitioners uh, or clinicians in various health or social care settings could enhance their style of working with people to incorporate more of a coaching approach. Uh, and in the traditional form, uh, that meant that you might have a, a GP who wanted to learn how to use coaching to enhance their work or you might have a nurse or a dentist or a social worker who, who's interested in learning to use coaching to actually support their direct work with patients or clients or, um, or the people that they work with, the communities they serve. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the kind of the core of the approach up until recently. But then uh, in the last two years, um, there's been the development uh, through the NHS in England uh, of a new role called a health and well-being coach, uh, which is one of the roles which has been designed for primary care to support primary care practice and uh, enable people to be 
looked after and served in a way which takes them out of the surgeries, takes them out of the, um, uh, the, the focus of more medicalized care uh, so that the health and wellbeing coaches are part of the overall um, system of support to help people, particularly around behavior change uh, and particularly about how they're managing uh, long-term conditions as part of something called self-supported uh, self-management processes. So the, the health and wellbeing coaches, uh, which are an actual role, a, a particular professional group now, um, have have been put into place. And, and I think for some people, that's meant that the whole idea of health coaching has been a bit confused. So it's both what a professional clinician uh, practitioner might use to enhance what they're already doing, and it's also now a role. Okay, so either, I know you've sometimes spoken about it as a, um, a big C or a small C, um, yeah. the coaching. Um, well, yeah, and, and coaching can be used, I mean, this is where it gets a little, even more, a little bit more confusing. So coaching can be just an approach. Uh, so I could use a coaching approach in how I see my patients, or I could use a coaching approach in how I manage a team, for example. So there are certain elements of what a coaching approach is, which sets it as different from a different kind of approach, which we can definitely talk about as we go through this afternoon. Um, but then there is more of a, a big C coaching where I'm deliberately using a coaching process or a system of working with someone towards more of a, a, a structured informed uh, delivery of whatever service that I'm doing, uh, which is based in coaching. Okay, so am I right in saying that the sort of end point you're hoping to get to is behaviour change? Most often, um, the coaching in, in the health and social care sector is used when we're trying to support behaviour change or support uh, managing a condition or, or some sort of a an issue in a way which supports someone to manage it better, which in turn is is changing the way that they're working with it, changing their behaviour in that sense. Okay, yeah. so that might be around their thinking towards it rather than rather than losing weight and not you know going on a diet. It's maybe how they, um, in terms of the chronic pain patients, would that be in terms of how would they change their behaviour? Yeah, so I, I mean, it depends on how you define coaching. And, and I think you know that the way I like to define it uh, is, is that coaching is really about supporting someone to change their relationship to whatever the problem or challenges that they're working with. And the reason why we come up with that way of looking at coaching is that in many um, types of coaching, um, organizational or leadership or developmental coaching, for example, the goal is really to solve a problem to fix, a, you know, fix something, to actually come up with a solution for something. But in health and social care settings where you have really difficult, intractable difficulties to manage, um, long-term conditions don't just get solved. They don't go away. So you know, what we have to do is work with people to support them to be able to free up the way they're seeing the problem, uh, to change the way they're relating to the problem so that they're able to actually... Uh, manage it differently and in that sense change the way they're managing it uh, so that's the extent in that, in that way of the behavior change that we're often talking about so you know when something's long-term ongoing quite difficult to manage um, often it's not about fixing it um, which is a very biomedical view by the way 
Um, it's more about managing it and working with it differently. And, and often that's what um, clinicians and practitioners using a coaching approach find themselves using it for, uh, to change, help someone change the way they're seeing something. Uh, and similarly, the health and wellbeing coaches who are in that role are working with people to support them to manage something that's quite difficult over time. So what you, you talked about, you know, it's mainly for long-term intractable conditions. What, what sort of conditions, you know, are generally being um, treated with this approach? Well, not treated, but managed or supported with this approach. Yeah, people are finding um, really good applications of coaching in, in different long-term conditions. So things like diabetes management, uh, things like cardiovascular risk, um, where people are managing um, anything which is a degenerative problem about changing the way they're seeing how they're managing that or the various lifestyle factors that go along with uh, managing difficulties and, and problems so, you know it could be that there's a need to change a lifestyle behavior it could be about diet or exercise or uh, any of those other things smoke, uh, smoking uh, well-being you know uh, stress management all of those kind of um, issues which impact on how someone is managing a long-term condition uh, and general health in, in, it, in itself, um, then using a coaching approach has been found to be pretty effective. There's a number of um, randomized control trials demonstrating that, that, uh, that are coming out of the US primarily now um, in, in different long-term conditions. What we're starting to see uh, is in, as, as people are getting used to the approach and getting into structuring it consistently so they can study it because up until recently, it's been all sorts of different things that hasn't been particularly well described. Um, then we're, now we're starting to see the evidence coming out uh, in terms of how people apply coaching in a consistent way to generate changes uh, in various long-term conditions. Right. Okay. So if, if someone, if a patient um, turned up at, you know, their, the doctors, what... Yeah. You know, how would they feel it's di different? What in particular would they say after the interaction that was different? Well, I think one of, you know, one of the really important points around this is that, you, you know, coaching is a personalization tool. So it's quite hard to make big generalizations. Yeah. But I think, you know, typically the shift that we're seeing in, in, in terms of how, how we might expect people to be working and, and operating is that if, if you think about, you know, forgive me if this is over-laboring it, but um, if you think about the, the traditional kind of biomedical delivery of, of healthcare services, um, often people turn up to those appointments almost expecting to be told what to do. Uh, and again, I know not everyone does that. I'm not saying that all clinicians uh, take that position. Uh, but quite often, people, when they're using services, are coming into that environment and, and that level of expectation. So they kind of expect to be told what to do. They expect to be diagnosed. They want to be told what's wrong with them. Uh, they, um, they're expecting to get instructions of how they should uh, take action after. And often the choices, the decisions, the, the kind of thinking and the power, in fact, remains with the practitioner or the clinician. Um, in contrast, what a health coaching approach is trying to do 
is, is doing what we would say is, is supporting someone to access their resourcefulness. Uh, and I know that sounds a bit of jargon, uh, but the way, the way that uh, someone might structure a coaching approach is to get someone to think on why they're there, you know, what's important to them. And even if there is, well, when there is a, a medical or a health concern, um, um, someone who's using a coaching approach will want to know from a, a patient or a person, um, how come that's important to you? So what's important to you about how you're managing this at the moment? Uh, and what would you like uh, to be able to do differently? So um, we're interested in what, what matters to them. Uh, we're interested in getting them thinking about their condition, thinking about how they're managing things, trying to get them to access what they know about their experience, which might be a, a way of accessing new ideas or accessing new thinking about what options could be useful uh, to support an implementation plan. So a lot of the time when a practitioner is using a coaching approach, their aim is to really work with someone to help them access new thought, to put two and two together, to make connections in their experience and recognize new ways of potentially addressing whatever the challenge or the problem is. Um, we, we talk about in coaching, supporting someone to really raise their awareness of what's going on so that they can actually generate new ideas and, and by doing so, create some intrinsic motivation to take action uh, as a result of the conversation. So, you know, there are two types of motivation in a very simple way uh, for psychologists we talk about. There's extrinsic motivation, which is the motivation outside of ourselves. So it could be that if I try to tell you to do something, that's more of an extrinsic influence. What coaching is more interested in is accessing someone's intrinsic motivation, which is you know the things which are really important to them, the new ideas they have, um, the kind of the sense of deeper um, insight, so that when they go along to take action, there's more likely that they will do that because they've thought of it themselves. Now, of course, really skillful practitioners can help guide and support people through that process to access their resourcefulness. Uh, and hence be more likely to take action and experience a better health outcome as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought it was interesting in the um, one of the King's Fund uh, papers, Hibbert and Gilbert, the one about patient act activation, where yeah. they, you know, at the start of it, they say something like 60 to 70% of premature deaths caused by detrimental health behaviors yeah. so you know there's sort you know you, there's a feeling that it's it's all you have to get people to engage more in their own health um and i suppose that's what you're talking about isn't it it's um triggering those thoughts and in, in their intrinsic motivation to get them to really want to do it yeah i think that's exactly right so um the the thing is not everyone is activated in thinking that A, that they should be self-managing for a start, uh, or B, that, you know, actually what their health status has got anything to do with them. So, you know, the basic principle of, of patient activation is that we have different levels of um, sense of um, efficacy for managing our own health, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, as a 
as a set of principles, the, the patient activation idea is that there are different layers or different categories of people that can be identified in terms of having different levels of activation or feeling that it's up to them to manage their own health. Uh, and in general, people with lower levels of activation tend to experience more ill health and they also tend to use resources more. So um, the idea is if we can help people become more activated before, um, you know, become more sort of self-managing in a way, then that will both improve uh, their, their experience of their, their health and, and, and their lives, in fact, and it will also have a positive impact on the, on the use of health and care resources. Uh, so, you know, with that, with that in mind, um, the coaching approach and health literacy, in fact, have been some of the very few things which have been found to help people to actually improve their level of activation. And it's because um, a health coaching approach is all about really being with someone, understanding what's important to them and working with them gently to help them unpack how they might be able to move more in the direction of their health uh, rather than, you know, the alternative, which is just tell them what to do where nothing actually changes. And I think sort of moving on from that, often you, you speak to patients and they don't really understand what's going on. They don't understand the diagnosis. They may not have had a diagnosis. They may have not had an explanation. They take the small blue pills, but they don't understand what they're doing. Um, not this is again sweeping generalization um, but there's a lot of um, sort of low levels of knowledge around associated with their health yeah so that you know that's the health literacy part so you know if people know and understand then they're much more likely to to be able to manage it um, but you know the other thing is we know that just knowledge is not enough so, you know, the, the classic figures that people talk about is that, you know, nearly all of us know that things like smoking is no good for us, but we still do it. Um, you know, not me, but people do. Um, you know, we all know that um, um, taking our medication as it's prescribed is, is what we're meant to do, but we know only between 30 and 40% of people do it uh, as, as it's prescribed. You know, with lifestyle advice, the, the estimation is more like 9 or 10%. So it means that 90% of the conversations we have with people aren't very helpful. Uh, and that's typically because we haven't helped them unpack it. We haven't helped them understand what's in it for them. And they haven't really internalized the opportunity uh, to self-manage with that. I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, it feels to me like this is also a, an opportunity to think about what, what makes the delivery of care more efficient, in fact. And... Um, Personally, I think that the conversations we have with people, which are often the main vehicle that we use to try to influence people in a certain direction, they're just not really fit for purpose in many situations. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. Of course, there's, you know, the time limitations. Uh, there are, you know, the fact that people come not really knowing what they want or expecting to be told. But it just means we need to change all, all of that. We need to shift the way that we have conversations with people we need to shift the way we listen to people uh, you know I personally think that there's so much we can do uh, just by improving our communication right yeah 
better listening skills. I know there's all sorts of stats on how quickly clinicians or healthcare yeah. interrupt patients. Um, I don't have that at my fingertips, but I know it's, you know, there's often poor listening skills, aren't there, from the... Yeah, and there, there, are different, there are different reports and different studies on it. You know, some people say that people interrupt within 12 seconds, you know, <laughs> uh, and the other, the other thing which you often see quoted is that if you give people 90 minutes or, um, excuse me, 90 seconds to two minutes, uh, they usually have said what they want to say. Uh, and sometimes that's a really useful investment of time uh, to really help someone arrive and be present to the conversation uh, and feel committed to it. Because if they don't feel, if you think about it for yourself, if you don't feel listened to, uh, it's pretty easy to switch off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just think, you know, the motivational interviewing, the Stephen Rol, uh, Rolnick um, work, yeah. you know, I almost feel as though it's quite reassuring when you see that um, change curve and some of the um, things he talks about of you know where people are on the curve um, or the change curve and you know it's okay to be ambivalent sometimes it's quite normal to be ambivalent about some you know sometimes you really want to do something you might want to lose weight but equally you don't really want to go through the process of getting there and you know he talks about that kind of thing being normal um, I don't know what you think about stages of the the change and and people actually visualizing it you know seeing it yeah. and having an explanation is that something that you think is a good idea yeah i think i think sometimes people use that really to great effect and um you know the the trans model or the stages of change model francesca and di clementi which is not same as uh, motivation interviewing but a lot of people have learned both together if that makes sense, it really does highlight the fact that not everyone's at the same uh, place in, in their willingness or readiness to change. Uh, it, similarly, the patient activation is, is a, another similar segmentation model, which shows not everyone's in the same place in terms of feeling it's their responsibility to self-manage. Um, yet we, we continue to treat everyone the same. <laughs> and, you know, this is the whole reasoning and idea behind the personalization approach, which are, co coaching is one of the key tools to actually make happen. So personalization means not everyone's the same. Everyone needs a different approach. We need to tailor our approach to fit the needs and interests of the people that we're working with. So, you know, recognizing that ambivalence, not knowing whether I want to change or not, uh, I mean, you know, if we don't actually meet people in that, it's very hard to imagine how we're actually going to support them to change. That's really what they're bringing. If we just try to overload them with information or advice, then that, they usually just shut down. Uh, the other thing that happens is that we can just be too safe and comfortable in our conversations with people so they don't get enough impetus to think about a change, uh, if that makes sense. So it's getting the right balance of, uh, you know, we talk about challenge in a conversation. So you get people into the point where they're actually thinking and aware of what's going on. Um, the other thing to say about that ambivalence um, and what I think is really, really helpful to recognize about the trans model and the stages of change is that as you move from one stage to another, 
the the movement is sort of mediated by two things and it what the research around it shows that people do two things one is they decide whether the pain's worth the gain so there's this idea of a decisional kind of balance that goes on somehow people appraise do i think this is worth me doing so you have to give people space to think about it you've got to help them work out whether they think it's worthwhile or not to actually invest the energy, the risk, the potential uh, suffering that comes with not, not achieving what it is that you set out to do. So you've got to work out, you know, where they fit around that. And in the same moment, they're also kind of imagining, do I think I can do this? So there's a self-efficacy component to it. So it's both, do I think it's worth it? And do I think I can do it? And if those things align in the right direction, then we get a bit of movement around the around the stages of change through the different different places, uh, the different stages. Um, the only thing that's going to really influence that is a conversation, and this the kind of container or the space that we create for someone to help them think about what's important to them. And a coaching approach is trying to help them both generate the awareness and identify the possible changes that can be made, thereby, you know, supporting that sense of self-efficacy that change is possible. Absolutely. Um, I suppose moving on slightly from that, how would, it's a sort of new approach and some people may have experienced it, but, you know, how would patients access this? And, you know, find out more just when they go to their local GP or, hospital well i think it's it's still fairly um hard to know who's using a coaching approach and who isn't so you know as i said before in in um primary care there are these people in role called health and well-being coaches so i guess people would be um they would be aware if they were seeing someone called a health and well-being coach uh, and they might be pointed uh, or referred to someone who's a health and well-being coach um, in the um, in primary care from a GP or, or similar. Uh, but then there are all sorts of other roles in general practice where people are also using coaching. So social prescribing link workers, many of them have been trained in using coaching. Yeah. Coordinators have been using coaching as well in these different, different roles, which are about supporting people uh, to self-manage. Um, across secondary care it usually what happens is that there are different teams or groups of people or along pathways uh, organizations have decided listen we're going to try out a coaching approach here I had a, a lovely experience um, over the last couple of weeks of working with an adolescent rheumatology uh, department uh, where they they were learning together the consultants right through to the physios and the nurses and the even the front of um, front of house staff, the, the people on the desk and, and the administrative staff, learning how they could start thinking about employing more of a coaching approach in their work with, with adolescents. And um, what was really interesting about working with them was that one, learning the coaching skills and learning the, the, the health coaching approach, but secondly, working with them to plan where in how they work with people, could they make it more of more um, aligned to using a coaching approach. So, you know, they came up with great ideas like, you know, instead of um, um, 
just waiting to someone to to get to clinic um you know before they asked what was important to them actually getting people to think about that in advance uh, so that they came with an idea in mind and um also explaining to people that when they come to clinic they'll be invited to think for themselves about different things to be part of the conversation and generate ideas rather than just expect um you know to come and have someone solve the problem for them as such so it was just fascinating to see that you know it seems to work really really well when teams and departments learn together about how they might think about changing their ways of working their their practice in order to incorporate this approach it's not it's not just one practitioner doing it differently but it's us as a system or us as a group doing it differently i think that's probably what will generate the best results in the long term yeah that's quite it so it's a whole kind of culture approach for that the whole i can see how that works much better than us just a standalone um yeah well you know it's like it's a way you, you of working off, yeah yeah well you go off on a course and you learn about this great new idea called coaching and you come back to an environment that didn't change so it's quite hard to, to sort of embed an approach on your own in a you know, in a hospital of um, 14,000 people or something. So, you know, it's, it's how can we as a group or as a team learn to employ the approach and transform the way we're working with patients to embed it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I was going to ask you if you had any particular success stories. So obviously ah. you've just, you know, you've had, had one. Is there anything else? I think that one, you know, if we think in secondary care, I think that's a, that's a really interesting one. It's only just happened. We don't know if it's been successful yet. Uh, but another one which I find really, um, it was amazing to me. And this was quite a number of years ago now, but in working in a, in a rehabilitation ward um, in, in the south of England, um, a rehabilitation ward is a place where, um, where patients uh, uh, go when... They're not quite sick enough to be on a medical ward, uh, but they're too sick to go home, or in fact, often there's nowhere for them to go. So it's in for hospitals, for big hospitals, it often becomes a place where people accumulate, and um, you know they be, it, it becomes quite an issue about managing uh, and helping these people to retain their 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 wellness. You know when they're still in hospital as such. So. Uh, some very clever people there thought, wow, why don't we try using a coaching approach to change the way we're working uh, with these folk? And what was really interesting is their intervention was to train everyone in the, system, in, in the ward who interacted with, with patients on the ward. So from the healthcare assistants, through, again, through to the consultants uh, and the nursing staff, all to use more of a coaching approach both in their conversations with the people and also in the, the way things were organised as such. So they would have more coaching-framed organisations, but they would also stop doing things for people the way that they normally did and, and tried to create more equality in, in giving people choice and giving them the option uh, to do things for themselves. So, again, trying to structure what was happening that in a way that it supported more of a self-managing or a self-management process rather than assume that the person's needs something done for them right uh, the research around this was really interesting uh, it was that they found over 
through through the economic analysis and the and the actual uh, psychological data side analysis that people tended um, to have um, higher well-being impact. So they seemed to leave more well than when they came in, which is a good thing. Um, they, they also seem to, uh, they, they left quicker. So on average, I think, I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like 11 or 12 hours quicker than they would have before this intervention, which doesn't sound like much, but over a year, you could imagine that adds up uh, in a ward. Um, and also they left with less care packages than when they came in. And I think the financial analysis worked out to a savings of 3.6 million pounds per annum. Uh, from having that intervention. And of course, the cost of training 70 staff in that was very little compared to the gain that's there. And um, I just think it's a nice story because it's been properly documented in evidence to show that when you get groups and teams working in a certain way together, um, which really are about supporting um, people to be well, uh, you can get really, really positive outcomes. Yes, absolutely. You know, because obviously, you know, huge amount was it something like 70% of NHS spending is on long term conditions. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, anything you can do. So in the health economics seems to be um, in favor of, of integrating this approach. Well, I think, I think, yeah, I think it, it's, you know, there's a lot of variation in what's offered and what's called health coaching. And it's not always the same thing. There are some studies where it's not really health coaching it's just a phone call if that makes sense it's not really about you know challenging someone to raise their awareness and increase their responsibility and change how they're relating to something sometimes it's just a a call and a tell but someone's called it coaching because it sounds better than calling it a call and a tell um so, <laughs> so we've got to be a bit careful about making those kind of comparisons and there's different levels of expertise and experience in, in, in you know the kind of coaching that people do uh, but in general there's a very very clear message that supporting self-management is a worthwhile investment and it and it really really um, is clear from the literature that using a coaching approach is one of the key ways to actually support that um, we keep talking about it being economically motivated but actually I don't my interest is in the fact that people feel better as a result Mm -hmm. You know, and and you know, as a practitioner, when you work with people um, who are unwell, you know, you know their lives their lives over time tend to shrink, right? So, if I think about people I've worked with over the years, where it feels like life gets smaller and smaller, you know, it starts revolving just around interacting with the health and care system or the pharmacy, or you know, they don't leave home as much. That you know, it becomes very small. Um, I, I think most people who are in health and care do it because they want to make a difference and they want to have conversations with people that promote a difference. They're not interested in just saving money, right? It's, it's no. much more around how can we help people enjoy their lives? How can we support people to have greater well-being? And uh, how can we encourage people to, to really thrive, to enjoy their lives? And, and, and okay, might have a couple of long-term conditions that, might be tough, but how can we make the most of that? You know, and and how how can people um, really find the conversations they have when they interact with health and social care 
um, positive experiences which support them uh, to have better lives, not to not to be situations where they just turn up and, and and listen to being told that there's not much that can be done about their problem, but which unfortunately is the experience that many, many people have. Yeah, I mean, I was just speaking to, I mean, I think it's, as you say, I think we're all wanting to have um, positive impact on patients and it's, it's the accountants at the top running, who are holding yeah. the purse strings that are probably looking at the health economics, but I was speaking to a dental patient last week who's had, she's not in pain, but she's had a lot of um, dental work done. And as you say, her world has shrunk um, because she's, because she feels uncomfortable and self-conscious, you know, what she used to do with friends every Wednesday or at the weekend, she's not doing, she's just canceled a family holiday because it's, she doesn't feel comfortable so her world is shrinking and she's learning how to grow it back again um, yeah. as as she starts to improve because she's in she's being managed and she will get better but she's in this horrible phase of you know life is not the way she wants to live it mm. and there's so many people in that place right mm. and and the other thing i'd bring into that and you know, without overgeneralizing it, right? But I think a lot of people stay engaged with um, the health and social care system because we keep asking them to be. Um, so it's almost like we don't give them a chance to, to self-manage. I'm reminded of a, uh, a patient when I was running pain kind of interventions and pain clinics where this guy... Um, who had lost a leg in a, an amputation from an accident. Um, he, he used to travel, this is when I was working in Australia, um, he used to travel in four hours in each direction to see me, which is a massive um, commitment, but you know, it's a very regionally ruralized society and people live a long way away. So he used to travel four hours in each direction to see me once every six weeks to two months. Um, and, um, I used to think we were going really well. <laughs> I was quite young, um, but I used to think I was doing a great job because I'd do all the reading. I knew exactly the right treatments. I'd done all the right preparation and I'd come up with all these great ways of trying to help um, this person. And um, after about 18 months of doing this where nothing had changed whatsoever, I asked him uh, if it was something that was really uh, helpful for him. Uh, and he said, no, not really. And I said, well, how come you keep coming back then? And he said, well, because you keep asking me to. <laughs> and, would, and was very humbling, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then I asked him, well, if, if that's the case if, and it's not important to you, why, why are you coming back? And he said, well, because I know it's important to you. And I thought, oh, my gosh, what damage am I, you know, what, what extra burden am I creating for this young man who was kind of accepting of the fact that things weren't going to change because you can't grow back a leg, um, you know, and he was, he was okay and kind of resolved with that. And it was a real lesson for me that I assumed that my treatment was the right thing. And I hadn't even really um, worked with, with him in a way where I found out what was really super important to him about it. And I think, um, yeah, I'm not proud of that, but I think that is, that maybe 
there's a lot of those sort of conversations going on where we just assume because the person's there, we're meant to do something and we keep them engaged in a system where we don't encourage them to self-manage in the way that's possible. If I'd been a bit better in my communication back then, um, maybe things would have been different. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's new for us to get feedback from patients, isn't it? Um, yeah, because we didn't really ask. <laughs> because we didn't ask. And it's only recently we've started to ask for feedback. Um, and But sometimes we don't ask the right questions. It's where you seen on time or... Um, yeah. I'm not sure they always ask, is this, is the, uh, is the conversation, is the, is the way your consultation going beneficial to you? That's interesting, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. You know, wouldn't it be great if we asked people, did that conversation get you thinking? Did it help you generate ideas about managing your condition? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just wondering out loud that maybe that's an important thing to work with people on. Yeah, we, we have to, we do have to get feedback within the NHS, but I don't think we're asking the right questions, really. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Um, so I guess that's, and you don't always want to hear um, that the consultation that you're having with the vet isn't helping them. You know, it's quite, as you say, quite sobering to be told that, but actually we need to know that, don't we? We really do need to know that. It's just a waste of everyone's time. Yeah, and, and, you know, please um, don't get me wrong. I know people don't set out to do that. Nobody joins, as I said before, health and care to sit in a room all day and tell people what to do. But for many of us, that's what it's become. Uh, and, you know, we might need to step back a little bit and think about the efficacy of the conversation we're having. And while we hold the, the, you know, the really important element of managing risk and, looking for red flags and making sure the person's not, you know, doing harm or receiving harm, but, and also, you know, using all of our knowledge and skills to, to support the medical part of the inter intervention or the interaction with someone. But there's also the opportunity to think about what's the quality of the communication and how's that impacting the overall um, experience of managing that disease or that, that, that problem, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you have um, experienced and used health coaching for a long time. Um, and you said in Australia, you'd used it, um, obviously, before you came here. So I suppose I want to ask you, how does it work in other countries? What is their kind of landscape? Yeah, um, I think, it. you know, in general, it's fair to say that around the world now, people are starting to use coaching in the health and quite a lot. Um, in Australia, it's used, I mean, uh, quite, I mean, I think in the in the early 90s, I was running OSCE stations for fourth-year medical students, helping them with their communication skills, which was effectively them learning how to use coaching. You know, to, you know so it was it was not it's not new by any means uh, uh, at all. But in, in the states, uh, it's a slightly different model because there's a very insurance-driven market, and and people have caught on to the idea that keeping people well saves money. Uh, so there, you know, health coaches abound uh, both in the, in the private individual uh, sector. There's more of a, um, a well-being, uh, health and well-being kind of coaching and nutrition kind of market there, uh, as well as, you know, organizations and companies 
uh, insurance companies using health coaches to really support populations uh, to, to do well. Um, there's also quite a lot going on now where individual health coaches are being used to support more tech-orientated interventions. So one of the areas which I think is really interesting is how do we prepare people for surgery, for example, uh, or how do we help people recover uh, from surgery, for example. Or, uh, and, you know, it's been found that if you have coaching with people in the preparation, they can get themselves into a place where they're much more likely to recover well. Uh, so, you know, there are all sorts of new innovations where people are starting to recognise that the quality um, that we engage with the health and care that we receive is super important and that can be enhanced by uh, the quality of the relationship we have with that, which coaching can really support. Um, I think the human side of it uh, seems to be pretty important. The app on its own will do so much, but then when you have conversations about your learning uh, or your preparation, that seems to be where it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's interesting. I was at talking about um, tech and apps. You know, I was at yeah. something last week and people were um, talking about their um, life assurance app with all those other apps, of course, that are feeding into it on, you know, um, mindfulness and all yeah. the things that would kind of obviously keep their potentially keep them healthy and um, keep their premiums, obviously, at the right level. So, you know, lots of sectors are, are coming on board with this, aren't they? I think people are recognising staying well is is an important thing to do and, and there's real interest in that. I think there's a, a whole um, unequal distribution of, of, of health that we need to be thinking about with that. So while you know, using your app to stay healthy and get your mindfulness class and eat the right celery and, and things like that is, is super important for a certain segment of the population. There are still people who, you know, a massive proportion of our communities uh, who have ill health as, as standard, right? Uh, who have lower life expectancies, have a greater incidence of cancers and, and all sorts of other kind of... Um, terrible health outcomes, which the quality of the communication is impacting. Uh, and, you know, I personally believe that we, we part of our duty of care as uh, practitioners in health and care is, is to make sure we're learning uh, and, and always learning as, as practitioners about the quality of service that we're offering. Uh, and I, I think that the quality of the communication is a part of that. It's not just about knowing more and more stuff mm -hmm. uh, or having more interventions that we can offer, but, you know, getting down to it, it's like, how, do, how am I talking to this person? How are they receiving the information or how am I understanding them, you know, so that it gives them the best chance of being able to, to, to manage or uh, to take whatever advice I have to give. You know, no one's saying that people should forget about their knowledge and skills in certain specialties or in certain areas and just drop it all and coach people. What we're saying is using a coaching approach could be an enhancing feature of the way that you communicate that knowledge and, uh, and experience that, that really serves people in a different way. I think. 
I mean, there's some alarming sort of figures and stats around sort of health. And as you say, you know, huge numbers in the population of poor health and it's, you know, it's not changing. So, you know, we're talking about different uh, conversations, different approaches. And this one where from the um, Health Foundation, you know, where they say as little as 10% of the population's health and well-being is linked to access to health care. Yeah, I mean, the social determinants of health research is extraordinary. So there are so many other things that influence us. Uh, and, you know, most of the time people are managing themselves, right? So, <laughs> so you know, when in the, in the small amount of time where they do access more formalised health situations or health and care kind of environments, it's super important to get the communication right um, so that it can prompt... Um, some more of, of, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could shift the percentage a little bit <laughs> on some of those variables? It would, so that the healthcare was having, when they do inter interact, is having more of an impact. Yeah. Uh, as, as you say, I suppose that ties in with all the, you know, it's where they live, the environment they live in, who's supporting them or not supporting them. So it is a complex issue. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it might sound oversimplifying to say, well, the quality of your communication can really impact that. But it's there's a very low barrier of entry to this intervention. You know, learn how to do some coaching, learn how to you know use these kind of approaches and you could get results immediately uh, as opposed to, you know, it's a low tech intervention, actually. To, to change the quality of the communication that we have with people uh, to thereby affect the, the health outcomes that they're experiencing. Okay, so I mean, I think it's a, it's a fascinating topic, you know, behaviour change and, 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 you know, how you change the conversation and the impact it has on people and, you know, so important. Um, so I suppose um, I kind of probably want to kind of sum up um, at this stage because we could you know we could we could go on for longer of course but um, you know what, what do you think are the key takeaway points for people that are are listening and, and this is a new concept for them I well I don't I don't know we could keep talking about it forever of course couldn't we but <laughs> I think I think the thing is the way you see the people you're working with really really makes a difference if you, this is my belief, so if you see the people that you're working with as um, people who are in need of expert advice and, um, and um, solving and fixing, then you probably will get a certain level of buy-in and engagement. Or if you can see the people that you're working with as having the potential to be really resourceful, then it might shift the way that you communicate with them uh, and it might shift the way that you use your expertise and advice uh, and, and knowledge to support them to actually move forward with whatever it is that you're trying to influence them towards. So I just think the way we, we look at people, the way we, if we believe in people to be resourceful, it's much more likely that they will be resourceful uh, than if we believe them to be passive in this whole process. So. You know, I guess for me, the takeaway would be, you know, 
what's the quality of your communication and do you expect the person that you're working with to be resourceful or and, and in fact do you create the opportunity for them to be resourceful when you're interacting with them yeah so basically and the other thing i think you strong point you made was that when um, departments, hospital departments, or wherever you happen to work, um, it's a team approach. And you yeah. talked about doing it all the way through from the point of entry to that department at reception, all the way through to the whole clinical team. Um, yeah, I think the question for me is, again, if we hold that lens of, are we seeing these people as resourceful? Are we giving, are we creating an environment which gives them the opportunity to be self-managing? Uh, or puts things in a place where it's most likely that they could be self-managing, uh, then, yeah, that sort of analysis of a pathway or a way of uh, how people interact with the system that's offering the care uh, is super important as well. Yeah, because yeah. it sort of makes me think that, you know, you've said before, it doesn't have to be a healthcare um, professional sometimes who takes this approach. And often patients sit in the waiting room and or go to reception and they talk even if there's other patients there which is sometimes quite surprising they talk to receptionists about some quite personal things and and maybe that receptionist can just ask a simple question that makes that patient go away and have a think in a different way there there are a a lot of a lot of organizations are waking up to the fact that the people who do the support the behavior change doesn't have to be the, the one with the expert knowledge yeah. yeah okay i think Great. we probably need to um draw it to a close so just to say thank mm-hmm. you very much it's a fascinating topic and we've got lots of resources at the end of the podcast and um, i hope you've enjoyed that thank you very much let's chat health Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare.